ten dollars every time one of us does that <laughs> well i hope someone's getting that 10 bucks hey did you have time to look into uh playing music uh, um you mean on the show yeah um no not yet i've been okay. sick we don't need to know. About Which means I life. had the time, but not the inclination, because I was basically sitting on the couch, not doing what much. Did you watch? Um, I don't remember. No, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> you watched porn, and you don't want to say it publicly, huh? No, I'd say it publicly if I watched porn. Okay. Yeah. Um. I I put a bunch of notes on everything else. I didn't know I was going to get quizzed on what I watched in the last couple of days. Uh, um, I watched the bullet like a train. Natural question. I know, I know. I watched the bullet train. Um, what did you I think watched, of that? I enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, one of the reoccurring themes in it is the way that um, the Brad Pitt character keeps interjecting these kind of um, psychological framework um, statements, you know, in the middle of the intense scenes, he's saying things like, you know, can we slow down and talk about this? You know, there's no need for violence. That's sort of like that, which I think sort of started back in the day. Um, for me, I first noticed it in a film called every which way, but loose by Clint Eastwood, where there's kind of banter, between you know the violence that was you know sort of a counterpoint and i thought the writing the writing pretty cheeky in that sense um and i enjoy that sort of thing but i can see why other people were, might, might have be critical about it but to me it was a feature not a bug okay <clears throat> what i thought was <clears throat> i always think when i see like clever dialogue well, not always. Let me say this. Is that I air quotes clever? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I always think, oh, they're just trying to be Quentin Tarantino. And I was talking with Jonah about it. And I realized for Quentin, it's natural. It's the way he thinks. It's the way he talks. If you see him in interviews, he has that vibe. And that's the difference. I did enjoy Bullet Train, but there was an element... What the one that's worse, I don't know if it's called like Milkshake Cafe or something like that. Did you see that on Netflix? I haven't seen that one, no. No, that one's even like that one's trying so hard to be clever, you know, and the cool soundtrack with the ultra violent fight. You just like, come on, really, <laughs> really. Yeah, I loved Brad Pitt though, but he was so much fun. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Um, I caught up on uh, things on the Disney Channel like Andor and Willow, um, <clears throat> shows that I you know like from the Lucasfilm catalog. Right. What do you think? What do you think of the Willow series? Uh, well, the first twenty minutes of episode one scared the crap out of me because. It was just such saccharine Disney, and the characters all seemed like um, it looked like it was going to go really badly and be like a made-for-TV type of vibe. And I was really worried and di and very disappointed within the first ten minutes the way they introduced those characters. Such a, I just didn't to say it. It's a, in a Disney style, and I think. Eventually, it gets 
to the point where they start telling the intricacies of the story beyond the the introductions of the characters. I thought that whole the introductions of the characters part was kind of wooden hmm. and and plasticky and and they they do to me I would have much rather had them been sort of elusive and we don't quite know who these people are and have it be less you know understood but I I you know now that I'm into ep- I've watched episode 3 of the series and they're already now they're on the quest um I get it they they wanted to establish kind of the the frameworks of the the show was it possible that they like if you never saw the movie way back in the ancient days that they tried to catch you up real quick with all the movie elements in the well, first 20 minutes yes they did that was part of it there was a they did that for like a minute and a half <laughs> Here's the movie you missed 80 years ago. Here's the bit. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of what it was. Here's the ending of the movie. You haven't watched yet. If you're that age, which is kind of a bust. Like, dude, I don't know what's going on. Super psyched for Willow, the movie. And then when I saw it, I was like, well, that kind of fell short for me. Wasn't that one of the last ones that um, he actually directed? No, he didn't direct it. He didn't? You sure? Ron Howard directed it. Really? Yeah. That's even more disappointing. Well, it was early in Ron Howard's directing career, too. Um, what I would was have one liked of the last to... movies that um, Lucas directed? Are you upset that I interrupted you? No. Um, I'm used to it now. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the setup on that one. That was great. You're um, the the last movie that I'm aware that George directed was Red Tails, which oh. came after um, Star Wars Episode Six: Revenge of the Sith. What is it called? Red Tails. Rare Tales about the Tuskegee Airmen. Oh, right, 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 right. And I'm not sure he's the director on that one. I know he was. Uh, let me ask the Googles. Yeah, because I know he was very hands-on with Spielberg with the indie. Hey, speaking of indie, did you see the latest indie trailer? Yeah, I did. And? I'm excited. Same here. Uh, you're asking me questions while I'm looking something up, which is always disconcerting. Um, I'm pretty sure he was executive producer and director. He just, instead of getting the cursory shot, executive producer, so he, he directed the reshoots, but it isn't clear from Wikipedia who the director is. Uh, Direct. Oh, Anthony Hemingway was the director, but George did some directing on the reshoots that they did to get it back to where they wanted it. Are you still there? I'm here. I was just wondering if uh, I was looking up George Lucas too. So yeah, the one, the last one he directed was uh, episode Star Wars episode six. Oh, Star Wars episode three. Revenge of the Sith. And as far as the indie film goes, I think the t- subtitle's a little weak, like the Dial of Destiny. But that's okay because it's it's based on these old serials where the the subtitle's always some kind of you know fluffy kind of thing. So I get it. The MacGuffin in this film, the Dial of Destiny, is is this thing and they actually show it in the um, trailer. Did you notice it? What so, they show? They showed a picture of someone reaching to try and grab the artifact. It looked like the dial of destiny from, uh, from where I sat. 
Hmm. I just remember that his old friend from the first movie is in it. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's so perfect. So one of the things that I, what I'm hearing about this is one, it took forever. They were, they've been trying to make this film for five years and COVID really made it difficult. <laughs> well, and I then, heard that Harrison was just adamant, no more refrigerators. And that was a deal breaker for a long time. And that Harrison was someone who had a lot of influence on the storytelling and that, that would, you know, that, that Steven, you know, in a sense, this is the first indie film that's not an actual indie film because it didn't involve George, Stephen, and Harrison. Oh, really? Yeah. I think they all have to sign off on it per the agreements or whatever. Wait, but Harrison did it. But what I mean is Stephen didn't direct it. So because it's not all three of them, it's not technically an indie film per se. Right, right. And they had some st- trouble with um, <clears throat> the the Crystal Troubles. Skull. The Crystal Skull film, Harrison wasn't too fond of the alien idea. <laughs> so he wanted to do something else with Indy and have it be more the way Indy, you know, was initially the first right. three. Yeah. A tribute to those 40s films. I am convinced it's going to be a fun Indiana Jones film and I'm easy to please because I like all four of the previous ones. Even Uh, the refrigerator one? I don't know what you mean. I don't refer to any of them as that. I refer to Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull as Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull. The refrigerator one. Refrigerator one. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, speaking of refrigerators, yeah. you have any um, thoughts about Herschel Walker losing? Does that have any meaning for you? Well, you're sort of. You, it's interesting that you would call it the refrigerator because Herschel Walker was the fridge. No, but it was, was yeah. the only segue that I had available to me. <laughs> well, as someone who prefers the duplicity, shenanigans, and out and out lies of the Democratic Party party over the duplicity shenanigans out and out corruption and possible anti-american activities gop I'm glad that herschel walker lost but make no mistake they're all crooks and liars yeah that's how i feel too yeah <sighs> yeah i feel like yeah. we're the animals outside of the living room window or the dining room window looking through and we can't tell the townspeople from the pigs apart. They all look the same. That metaphor does not help. I don't know what you're talking about. You never read Animal Farm? Uh, I've had, no, I've never read it. Oh, it's a great, it's one of my favorite stories of all time. Because so that was the reference you were making? At the very end. So I think I've told the plot on this podcast not this particular episode but um, but i'm about to uh, real quickly the animals are enslaved on this farm they kick the farmer off because they don't want to be treated horribly anymore and they take over the farm and everyone's going to be equal like you know they have this code of ethic or whatever it's called and one of the things like all animals are equal but this, it's about the slow erosion of a dream and rights because of the corruption of power. So the pigs slowly take more and more power and, you know, justify it, of course. And at one point, the code becomes all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. And Got it. So we're just the animals looking in the window at the pigs. Right, and, that, and it ends where the townspeople and the farm are going to work together because it's going to benefit everyone. What? Spoiler alert. Yeah, spoiler alert. <laughs> well, and, uh, and the townspeople are invited into dinner and they're sitting at the table with the pigs and all the rest of the animals are looking through the window at this dinner going on and they can't tell anyone apart. 
everyone looks the same. The pigs can't tell anyone apart? No, the animals. the animals outside can't tell the pigs from the townspeople. They all look the same to them. Oh, okay. Got it. So the townspeople okay. and the pigs are sitting at the dining table at this feast to celebrate the collaboration, and they all look the same to the animals outside. There's some um, sort of metaphor there that I'm not getting, obviously. Maybe it's the disease of stuck in my sinuses that's affecting my thinking. Yeah, I think so, because the metaphor is so obvious that I'm scared right now. I'm hoping you're joking or you're just like on the fucking operating table, passed out, <laughs> breathing tube I, going down your throat. Hey, your internet today is horrific. I, I know it keeps reloading. It's very spotty. I've been noticing that. Okay. There's something about Friday mornings where, you know, that's when Xfinity decides, oh, well, let's mess with the, the connection down here on in Novato. Um, well, well, you did say that you saw you were having fiber delivered to your neighborhood. Well, they, well, they put it in, but the fiber company hasn't offered the house to pole connection yet. The last, what is it, 20 yards hasn't been offered yet. It's coming. I'm sure we're going to get something around the first of the year. So is peace. Peace is inevitable. <laughs> I like that. That's the title of this episode. And on that note, shall we jo- dive so in? One of the other work? movies I watched this weekend was um, Orgasm Incorporated. Which is about The one documentary taste. about one, one taste. taste. Yeah. And then I also... Um, when we when Art said we would probably talk about this, I listened to ninety percent of a podcast by uh, Tig and Cheryl. How come only ninety percent? Um, because I was busy watching Bullet Train. <laughs> were you listening to the podcast while you were watching? No, of course not. That Tig and Cheryl. I didn't hear the ending. I didn't hear the ending of the podcast. Was there anything revelatory about the last 10 minutes of the podcast? The only thing I can think about is what Tig said towards the end, and I'm not sure how far towards the end it was, but where she said a lot of people have this idea that if women were in control of everything, the world would be better. And in her experience, she's seen women be very cruel and horrible in places of power. I heard that part. That I okay. got that part. Yeah. So, so what 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 they are talking about, and what Orgasm Inc. is, is something called orgasmic meditation. And we may have mentioned it occasionally on the show, but um, both, you know, I'm a longtime practitioner of it, and Greg's been involved with it as well orgasmic meditation. And I had direct experience with Nicole Daydone who started One Taste. And I think Greg had experience with the legacy of One Taste, not necessarily directly with One Taste. Yeah, I think I was, what I had experience with is a community in Marin that were, went through the One Taste um, training and everything and we're continuing the practice in Marin and invited me to be a part of that. Yeah. And the practice we're talking about is orgasmic meditation, which is, you know, if you have children around, you should probably not listen beyond this point. Um, (laughs) I think simply put, it's the practice of being conscious in a state of orgasm or in a state of heightened sexual arousal. Okay, but what's the practice, the actual practice? So the actual practice is a nest is created, which is a lot of pillows and blankets usually to create a very comfortable space that a woman first enters into and she takes off her whatever she under whatever she's wearing on the lower part of her body to expose her lower body and 
then the, there's a lot of permission asking in this practice. So then the man, um, what I don't remember is if he says, okay, I'm going to step into the nest now, or does he ask if it's okay to step Yeah, yeah. let's not go with the whole blow-by-blow blow instructions. Let's just say that a woman lays on her back, naked from the waist down, butterflies her leg, and a man sits next to her and strokes her clit for 15 minutes. That's what OM is. But there's a lot of specific technique that's involved and the way requests are made, the way that this is entered into has very um, specific kind of approach to it that helps women relax their nervous systems to be able to receive that kind of direct pleasure. I think and, it relaxes everyone. Like I think that I was relaxed. It would help me relax the parameters of it. And again, ultimately, my experience was it was the practice of consciousness, of continual checking in. What am I feeling? And what do I want to feel? And how do I ask for it? Or how do I say that's enough? Or it was here, you know what? Again, because I love your phrase of um, lackadaisical perpetuitude of inertia. <laughs> That's my no, phrase. What, what it doesn't sound like me. Uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I meant um, <laughs> radical responsibility. That's what I meant. I love your phrase, radical responsibility. <laughs> I really, for me, that's, it was one of the most powerful experiences of learning radical responsibility. Because ultimately, whatever I'm feeling I'm responsible for. And part of the responsibility that I learned is to hold that responsibility, not dump it onto someone else. So did you learn that in the practice of home? Yeah. I mean, I would, I'd say it's something that I've been learning probably throughout life, but Ohm was a practice where it was a very heightened, um, it's right in your face, you know, it's right there. Like if all the judgments that come up, like, you know, oh, I'm not attracted to that person or, ah, oh, why do I, you know, oh, why am I doing this right? Am I okay? Oh, no. All that stuff. It was like not her responsibility. It's my responsibility. And what's very interesting is to me, um, I just read this piece from Course in Miracles yesterday or the day before that, okay, I'm going to paraphrase it, but ultimately it said, when you're angry at someone, you forget you did it to yourself. You've forgotten that you did it to yourself. And this morning I woke up with like anger and I was like, okay, I did this to myself. This, this story, this going through me that I, I'm angry. But, and it's always about someone else, like that person, and why'd they do that? That was wrong. And it's like, why did it? And, and so to flip it, like I did this to myself. And it was wonderful to land on, why did I do that to myself? <laughs> why the fuck did I think that was a good idea? Yeah. The piece so that I... Go ahead, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a lot of talking. I've had a lot of coffee, Mark. You better buckle in. You're sick. You're weak. I'm going to take full advantage of that. <laughs> so. I don't think this conversation's about Ohm anymore. <laughs> <clears throat> um, well, I forgot what I was going to say, so that was very well done. Well, you were talking about radical responsibility, and you're using that, the uh, example that you got out of the um, – Course in Miracles thing, which I get, and radical responsibility. Like one of the things that is available to men in Ohm, which is is this idea of you know not being in there. Am I doing it good? Am I doing it right? Value judgment mindset, and to actually slow down enough to just feel what's happening right in every instant. You feel what's happening in every instant. And the person who came up with the practice, Nicole Dedone, one of the interesting things is that 
it all started with the thing that she gave called the pleasure principle, which was a Ted talk. And it teaches women to ask for what they want. Ohm teaches women to ask for what they want and it teaches men. Well, let me ask you, what did it teach you, Greg? I think really that radical responsibility thing and the um, also being very much in the moment. So if I ask someone if they would like to home and they say no, I can feel what I feel about that. And I can also know that the next time I ask that individual, it may be a yes. So this thing of rejection isn't the ultimate end all of an experience of relationship with another. So hearing no from someone doesn't mean anything about you. And, and if it does, really, that's my trip that I've created out of that no. Okay, so slowing down, being in the moment. For me, what it taught me to do is to tune in and feel more. Both statically feel with my body, but also feel beyond my body and with the emotion. And then intuition. I learned intuition about what my partner was feeling. So one of the things that's available in an in ohm during 15 minutes is you can make, as a woman, you can make requests for slower stroke, faster stroke, harder, softer, up to the left, over to the right, whatever. Or stop. <clears throat> or stop. And That's usually not a stop. Thing. Stop is not a request. Let me just be clear. Okay. <laughs> so let's stay. That's a good thing to clarify. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's just be clear about the requests are given and then the man can receive them. And then a man can make offers. Right. Would you like a slower stroke? Would you like a faster stroke? Would you like a, you know, up or down, whatever. And so the language of, physiological stimulation is an important piece between men and women in the moment of contact. And for a lot of women, there's a lot of shame around what they want and their desire. And what for a lot of men, there's a lot of longing to understand what women want physically in the moment. And we're taught to try to read the cues like heavy breathing or moaning or whatever from women. And what, what, if you watch the documentary, one of the things that you find out is that Nicole talks about what it is to get nailed. And what she means is that when a person puts their finger on just the right spot on the clit, a woman no longer is boning and arching her hips. She's nailed. She, her nervous system goes into complete union with their nerve system. And so there's, it's, it's not frozen or shut down. It's the opposite. It's timeless. It's, it's stillness. It's deep stillness. And so often when men don't understand in sex that when the woman is super quiet and super still, that she might be actually experiencing the greatest pleasure right at that moment. And so one of the things that I learned from Ohm was that everything I thought I knew about a woman's orgasm needed to be rethought. And I Ohm is this great experiment in how to feel my intuitive sense of the woman, and then also be able to offer them something more or less, something different, and then receive their response. And the, what, I, what I noticed about women was they seemed challenged to ask for what they wanted. A lot of women were like programmed not to ask for what they want in sex, faster, slower, harder, you know, softer. And it was very freeing for them when they started to practice the request part of the practice to actually tap in to what they wanted and then request it. And then the third piece is what as, was that? That was what was what? Something just went what like this alarm. I don't know what that was. Wow. My phone buzzed, but I don't know what, what that was. Well it came across but, as an alarming sound. Which is interesting because when you touch a clit, sometimes there's electricity there. But anyway, so what I found for myself was over time, moving the pace and the, the pressure, changing my stroke 
became something I felt intuitively without making an offering or receiving a request. And there was something fun about that game for me. Are you still there? I'm here. The other thing that occurred to me is that a part of the community of Ohm was also these communal games that were usually played after an Ohm circle session, whatever you'd call it. Before and after, yeah. Yeah, I don't recall it so much before, but definitely after. So typically, before you're invited to Ohm, you would come to a, a meeting called turn-on meeting. And at the meeting, it would just be an hour of the dis- turn-on discussions, which are basically group prompts. There's a game called Hot Seat. There's a game yeah. called Intimacies. And, um, you know, you would introduce yourself by name. You go around the circle, and usually the next prompt was name a desire that you feel vulnerable about owning That's and right. having. And so, and so wait, once no, you I'm had gonna... gone to a, once you had gone a couple of those turn ons, you might learn who to ask to train to be able to own because you couldn't just go and be able to own until you were trained how to own and what own was because it, it would break down the barrier of security. One of the big pieces about own that serves the process is this idea of women feeling safe enough. Okay. So that sit down in that situation. So part of what the documentary and what definitely um, Tig and Cheryl were most of their podcasts was emphasizing the element of um, power corrupt. And it, This is one of the things I've been thinking about from watching the documentary, from listening to Tig and Cheryl's podcast and my own reflections and experiences in the past with similar situations of learning openness and vulnerability. And it does seem like in this Ohm situation and also what I recall from my early 20s, there are individuals who they open up into a vulnerability and then that vulnerability is used against them for lack. That doesn't quite capture it, but there's no empathy involved with the people who are leading the community. Instead, they turn on an individual and that individual is hurt by the experience. And I think, I was thinking about this, I think this is obviously my hypothetical, my hypothesis, but I believe that like with Nicole, she's very connected to her power regions of herself, very powerfully connected, completely disconnected from her heart. And so the empathetic elements that would keep power in a healing situation are not readily available and people get hurt because of that. Okay. So I want to translate that. Is that okay? Absolutely. I know sometimes I speak. Your hypothesis is that, Nicole got off on being the head of the organization so much that she continued to want to manipulate people at a higher level and gain more money. Um, I, I think the money was fun for her, but I think more fun for her. And I don't, and I, and it, Let's say this, in your and my relationship with each other, there have been times where you've expressed to me what you did hurt me. It didn't hit right. It didn't lift me up. It actually 
brought my energy down. And my empathetic connection with you is an acknowledgement that that is real. And I'm a part of that reality. And I have a choice to heal that. And part of that is an acknowledgement that it's real. What I saw in the documentary and what I've kind of known, you know, there's another, I've experienced with some people uh, that they are not in a place to accept hearing that they caused harm. It's, it's, brushed off in essence they don't want to be bothered with it and i i understand nicole like this is a strong triggering thing when she says when you're raped you that's actually your choice you have a choice to actually get off on it that's a fucking okay, so wait statement. i'm gonna stop you because you're quoting her but you're not actually quoting her well, you're, you're doing something that I think is actually disservice to the discussion because she didn't actually say that. She actually did. No, I just watched it. She didn't say that. What'd she say? She talked about how you relate to whether you want to remain a victim or not. Right. And she didn't say what you said. She did. She, I mean, I may be paraphrasing, but in essence, she communicated. <laughs> well, either she did or you're paraphrasing. Which is it? No, no. But the, the essence of what she communicated was that there's a choice involved with rape and that being a victim is a choice that the individual is making and there are other choices they can make. And I agree with the statement. However, I also believe that there that is missing the heart connection, the empathetic connection to people. And that is the piece where one realizes rape is not an okay choice. Without that empathetic connection, you could hear that statement and understand the logic of it and thereby justify an act as extreme and potentially horrific as rape. But with the empathetic connection of the heart, one realizes that is a, not a choice to make. I just think that where we've gone is just so problematic right now. Like Absolutely, but that was no, what the I whole- mean is. What I mean is the way that this is being framed right now feels really abstract and off base. And I don't feel good about the conversation right now, but let me just try and bring myself in. Okay. I don't like the idea that you can, that a person can reframe rape in a way that somehow negates the impact of that on a person. I think that's wrong. I think that that's, like you said, it's missing what's really going on. I think that's what you said. And I also think that in the event of such a thing happening, there's a point at which it would be beneficial for the victim to move beyond the story of being victimized and into an empowered place. And that that's not up to someone else to define and it's not up to us to shame or say you should around that. But it's like a hope. Like you could hope that there'd be enough healing that someone could rise out of being defined by that. But this is why rape is so intense and why it's it's violence and not sex is that it's uncalculable and so debilitating to someone's psyche and body and their whole nervous system to have power just torn from them in that regard with relationship to pleasure. And it's my chest hurts just talking about this. And that's what the woman in the documentary was expressing. She experienced and there's no acknowledgement from, you know, at least presented in the documentary, there's no one acknowledging her reality, 
within the One Taste community or by Nicole herself. Right. So there's no accountability around the, the missing understanding of the idea that you could become, um, you could shift your status as a victim, right? Is that what, miss, you mean? That, what you said earlier about in the act of rape and an individual's power, like they're just stripped, it hurts your chest so much to feel what is actually happening. And this one woman was saying that was her experience and no one was stepping into that empathetic space and hearing her and acknowledging, yes, that is what you experienced. Instead, there's a dismissal of, oh, you were too weak. Uh, that was your choice. Uh, didn't have to be that way. I, I don't agree. think that was really what happened. I agree with what you're saying. And that, that that level of interaction isn't what you know one taste and what uh ohm claims it's it's supposed to build which is this idea of empathy and communication and connection it's disconnection and i think earlier in what you're saying you really called out how nicole was able to talk about the concept of things but she wasn't necessarily able to feel it fully herself Right. And even what she said about her own father, very triggering, very powerful. And also, as you just said, a bit disconnected. Yeah. So I just want to bring up something to you, which is that I I talked to Nicole this morning about being on the show. Oh, awesome. There's a strong probability that her team is going to listen to this. Because right. I can pay their attention to it. So that's, that's part great. of why I'm feeling really uncomfortable about the conversation is because I'm, she's not here to defend herself. She's not here to talk about herself. Well, I would even and invite so, her not here to defend herself, here to join us, here to, I would love for her to be a right. part. What, what I'm trying to communicate to you is I really wanted this conversation to be more about the films and less about the person and more about the practice of home and less about the person that's why i kept I think, i've been trying to reach out to her to get her to have the conversation with us right because right. one of the things i hated about what pig and cheryl did was they fell into that that old dynamic of ew sex is gross you know like and just you know they they said the word horny like four times during the show and each time they did they made fun of it as if it was like icky and i just find that so adolescent and so immature well and so it, it, my experience was different with the word i think they because i i listen to tig and show all the time and that word they were playing with on a previous episode how funny and adolescent the word is so it was sort of an inner joke i think between the two of them the word yeah. horny now, they were absolutely on the negative side of the ohm thing. Another example. This well, they, is just what they, they didn't talk at all about the practice itself and what the potential benefits were. They talked about how Goop heard about it, how Gwyneth Paltrow heard about it, and they talked about knowing Gwyneth. But they never said, what was it about this that actually helped people, that actually was good for people? And well, they so talked about how it was like 15K to join, which wasn't true. Here's it wasn't the thing with documentaries. Documentaries have a tendency no, I'm to talking about Tig and lean Cheryl. on the negative. And the documentary that Tig and Cheryl watched was leaning hard on the negative. Another example is that documentary you and I watched about that guy back east. I think he started in Boston. The Nexium. It's called The ne Bow. Right. I'm watching season so, two of it. I'm, you know, from my experience of watching that documentary, I had a very negative idea what that whole scene was about. And then I met a woman who actually was there and she was sharing with me that she, it was a very positive experience in her life. Another example is Est. I, my parents went through Est and as a child, I went through the child experience with Est and then teen. I have a very positive experience with Est 
and Werner Erhard. However, generally speaking, there is this, you know, like you say, est, and a lot of people are like, what the fuck? You could do that almost with anything, you know, Mormonism, you know, Christianity. There is, I think we people like to lean into the negative. That seems to be a human base element that ultimately we are all working to heal. Yeah. I think this has come up before in many different forms in our conversations. I think it's an interesting insight. Um, I'm feeling a little uncomfortable because I have different expectations and hopes for this conversation and I don't like where it's going, but <laughs> Leaning into that and, and having deepening in is kind of what we want to demonstrate here, right? There's this other possibility, right? right? Like I've got three, three by five cards full of notes about things that I wanted to talk about here. And so, you know. <laughs> oh, I'm dying. I'm fucking dying. Oh my god, that is so fucking funny. Oh shit. Oh my god, thank you. I needed that. Oh, oh I'm not sure why god. it's funny. Maybe because it was vulnerable to admit that, that my expectations aren't being met or whatever. And, and I think the- that I don't have that skill of communication if I don't try own. And that's what I'm trying to get at here is like, yes, everyone wants to focus on the negative and there's a lot of negative there. There's some really bad impacts and it was really bad to gaslight people who've raped. It's terrible. And I'm really sick and tired of people denigrating this practice because on the surface it looks bad. Because, yeah, yeah, there was some real damage there. But I participated. I'm not an it. I'm not a member. There was something there. There is something there that is extremely beneficial to people. And yeah, it's sad because the way it got commercialized and the way it became this company that was designed to be a multi-level marketing scheme to get more and more money out of people is terrible. But the reason it's more terrible is because of what it does to the core kernel of enlightenment that can happen through the practice. That's why when, you know, the leadership of the Shambhala Institute, the son of Chogyang Trumpa, he was ousted because he had had sexual relationships with one of the monks, one of the female monks. This is a common thing in America where spiritual leaderships and hierarchies get corrupted by base level desire. And I think one of the interesting things about Omen, despite the story around Nicole and the, the problems with the organization One Taste, if you actually follow the principles of Ohm, you can learn so much about how to have your desire fully expressed and to really lean into sensual expression and communication and connection in a way that's healthy and exalted and has a kind of presence to it and consciousness to it. And so that's, I think, why I get so reactive in this conversation is because something that was transformational and affected me deeply in a positive way and gave me access to tools as a man that I desperately wanted is so swept under the rug in the face of all of this kind of hyperbolic analysis of, you know, how culty it is or, you know, and that Tig and, and Cheryl being so petulant about the words that were used and i i guess i have to take responsibility for my resentment and my um dislike of those things because that's all happening for me right it's not happening for anybody else um you know we all want the same things we all want to love to be loved to see be seen to know our what our purpose in life and to feel connection that's something Nicole said in the documentary. It's really and powerful. I think the one gentleman that was one of the central people followed in the documentary, the bald gentleman who, you know, I personally, you know, even at the very, very end of the documentary, when he's on his sailboat 
and you see him sailing. The way he described himself before he entered the own community as someone who thought he was unworthy of love and he wanted it so desperately and it just wasn't ever going to be a part of his life and who he was. And the man I saw in that sailboat was someone who was very much in his body, grounded and at peace in a sense. And I think that is a positive um, real world demonstration of the what Ohm was capable of in an individual's life. Yeah. And I think that's what I wanted to get out of this conversation was the acknowledgement of, of this thing that's so potent that underneath this sort of critical, you know, dismissiveness of this documentary and that makes me sad at such a deep level. And and I, I'm going to cop to being personally a little too sensitive about it, right? Because it means so much to me. I'm taking it too personal, which I just said like 15 minutes ago. When someone's in disapproval of something, it means nothing about you. It's just they feel about it, right? Right. So, right. you know, it came – Elm came into my life at a really cr- critical moment. And my portal into entry was through the men's side of it which was called the Ignited Man Workshop, you know, and it wasn't Nicole initially that I dealt with. It was the men in one taste. And so when it was introduced to me after two days of training around being present to my feeling, trusting and being able to communicate emotional content effectively and that just my awareness into my own ability to be intimate in the sense of not just sexually, but um, just directly intimate with someone was so enhanced by it. That's why I have so much skin in this game because the benefit for me in my life was incalculable. You know what this all reminds me of? The Zen story of the scorpion and the frog. I think you tried to tell me that last week. Well, then I won't say it again. If we've already oh, no, I want you to because my memory's that bad. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Mark. <laughs> We're coming up on the anniversary. Yeah, we'll tell uh, the story. So there's a scorpion, a frog on the side of a riverbank, and the scorpion wants to get to the other side, and obviously you can't. Scorpions can't swim. Scorpion asks the frog, Hey, can you give me a ride across to the other side of this river? The frog says, no way, man, you're an enemy. You'll kill me. I'm not going to do that. The scorpion goes, no, I won't do that. That'd be ridiculous. I'd, why would I do that? I'd, we'd both drown. I'm not going to do that. The frog goes, really? The scorpion says, yeah, come on. The frog says, all right, hop on my back. And the scorpion hops on the frog's bank, and the frog starts swimming across the stream. He gets about halfway across. The scorpion stings him. And they're both sinking down into the river. The frog goes, why, why'd you do that? The scorpion says, hey, I'm a scorpion. Recording stopped. <laughs>